Boy, I tell you, I, when we're singing that hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, some of you may know, some of you may not, that uh, those words are hundreds of years old, written by a man named Isaac Watts. And uh, he had, uh, he's, uh, his title is, uh, that has been applied to him as the father of, uh, of hymns, English hymns, because he just had an incredible way to uh, condense truth in uh, the words of a hymn. And uh, I, I think living back when he did, it was easier to survey than it is these days. To ruminate, to stop and ruminate. And, and, uh, when we, the words that we've sung this morning, again, I, I can't get past the fact that it requires of us, demands of us, as, as he ended that hymn, demands that we, we consider it. Uh, when I survey, when I consider, when I ru- ruminate on the cross of Christ, uh, I just encourage us today, life goes by too fast not to, to stop and, as we say, smell the roses, but not to uh, not stop and, and consider and survey the wondrous cross. It is a story, the story of Christ that is unique. We know that. I'm going to state some things as we begin today that I think we we understand, we get. But then hopefully we'll drill down a little bit and apply them to our everyday track. We know that the story of Christ is unique because... He was willing to come to earth and come for us. And we believe that he was the only one eligible to do that. It was an act of reduction. It was not an ambitious act of promotion. It was an act that he voluntarily did. It was not forced. When I think about things that are reduced, there are things in life that uh, that are uh, advantageous, that they are reduced. It's to our benefit that they... They get reduced. So some of you who uh, have been using the computer for quite some time will recognize uh, the picture that I'm going to put up here, the, the top of the, the picture. There's two pictures kind of melded together. But the top of one, the, the, there, what used to be called three-and-a-half-inch discs. Anybody use those? Uh, yeah. Well, I, I don't know about you. My first computer used five-and-a-half-inch, no, five-and-a-quarter floppies. And I had a dual five and a quarter floppy computer, man. That was hot sausage back then. That was a, that was a big deal. Well, these bad boys were three and a half inches. They were no, no longer floppy. They were hard. And they, um, they, do anybody remember how, how much they held? How, how much storage one of these three and a half inch floppies had? Not much. What? Oh, you heard. Ah, oh, yeah, you, you got the teacher's name. 1.4 megabytes. Now, back then, man, that was really, really something. In fact, someone reminded me this morning that Bill Gates was interviewed years ago, and they asked him, in your wildest imagination, how much maximum storage do you think a person would ever need in their lives? I mean, I mean, if you just like max it out, 256 megabytes. We've grown a bit beyond that. Because if you calculate, now on the bottom of the picture, you see this little drive. And if you can see it from where you're sitting, it says 8 gigabytes. Let me do a little math for you. In a gigabyte, a gigabyte equals 1,000 megabytes. So that means that if you just had one gigabyte, these disks, it would take roughly 715 of these disks, these 3.5 inch disks, 
to fit in one gigabyte. Well, this is eight gigabytes, just that little teeny thing. That means that that little eight gigabyte deal would be the equivalent of 7,514 of those disks that sit on that table. Isn't that amazing? Now, if you use those disks, you remember that you had storage containers. Remember that? Storage containers and then containers upon containers. And so... Here's the bottom line. It has been to our great advantage that this reduction in technology has taken place. It's to your advantage if you go to the bank and you say, man, my mortgage rate is five and a quarter, but I can refi and get three and 0.75 or whatever your mortgage rate. Things that get reduced are great. The greatest reduction, as many of us know, in human history was the reduction of Christ. You see, we learn that Christ voluntarily reduced himself. I draw our attention to Philippians chapter 2 this morning in a verse that is well known for us that follow Christ. Philippians chapter 2. Christ made himself nothing. This is as we know as human beings, the greatest reduction ever uh, experienced. Christ reduced himself to nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Now, when you consider this story, the greatness of it is amped up because of who Christ was. I'll remind you that Christ, as we believe through the scriptures, is equal to God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. He is equal to God who we know from the beginning who created heaven and earth. Elohim, the Hebrew word for the holy other, the strong one, the mighty one. This is Christ. I'll remind you that in the first chapter of the book of Colossians, that he, Christ, has supremacy over all things, that all things were created by him, that all things were created through him, all things were created for him, that this is the Christ, this is the one who came down, who was willing to make himself nothing and reduce. That amps up the greatness of this truth. We've seen it before in Psalm 8 where David said, Oh God, our God, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Who are we? What is man that you would care for him? Now on the other side of the cross of Christ, our praise and thanksgiving and appreciation for this moment should be greater than that of David who did not see the cross, who did not live downstream of the cross in his lifetime. So we as believers and followers of Christ not only say, oh, what is man that you are mindful of him, but we would say, what is man that you are mindful of him and actualize that in the cross of Christ. This is not just a biblical concept. It's not a fairy tale. It's not a myth. But you actually tangibly, touchably came down to earth and showed us that it is a privilege that we are being minded for. We've looked before at the prodigal son and how the father, when he saw the son of all people, wealthy landowners didn't run But this landowner, this father, when he saw his son from a distance, he ran to his father, uh, ran to his son. This is a picture of Christ. 
that he did not deserve to come down. He didn't have to come down. He had a status that was equal to God, and yet he reduced himself for us. There's not a person sitting in this room this morning that doesn't understand the challenge that it, that it takes for us to be reduced, to reduce things. Now, there's some, some things that are that we want to get rid of. We want to say, hey, man, we want to downsize. But there are things sometimes that are hard. Someone shared with me in our act group that, uh, yesterday. They had a motorcycle and had it for 13 years. Very important. It was an important part of their life. They enjoyed it. And yet it came, it came to a place where he said, man, I just want to let this thing go. I've got to let it go. And, and it's tough. And, and those moments where, where we have something that's, that we want to get rid of or we have to get rid of. And that, uh, you know that the tension of that moment. I think those don't compare to the difficulty of not reducing of things, but the reducing of those inner things that we wrestle with. Ambition, pride, uh, fear, concern, anxiety, worry, all those things. If you say, let me, why don't you reduce your anxiety? Like, man, I'm trying. And it's very difficult to reduce those inner things in our life. So as we begin today, as a matter of, of, of introduction, let me frame our minds or attempt to frame our mindset and what we're going to look at and the tension that we face on a very everyday practical level, but it comes from a very, very, very aerial shot of life. This is not an aerial shot of the state of Florida or the country of the United States or even internationally, globally. This is not even a shot that you would see from the universe of seeing the galaxies and all the stars. This is a shot that is higher than all of that. And it's a kingdom shot. Because see in this lifetime. Way behind the scenes. At the uppermost part of life. There is a tension between what we would call. What the Bible would call in fact. The kingdom of darkness. Versus the kingdom of light. Now, some of you are like, wow, dude, I'm just trying to figure out how many tacos I'm going to fix for lunch. I mean, that's, that's heavy. It is heavy. But every, the everyday tension that we face comes from somewhere. So let me take your minds back. We've done this before, but it's good to remind ourselves, where does this tension come from of the difficulty of wanting to lose things, wanting to reduce, and yet it's very difficult. Before man was created, before Adam took his first breath, before the world as we know it, the earth was created, there was tension in heaven. That tension came from one that many of you recognize his name, Lucifer. Now, when we, when you say the word Lucifer, most of you think, oh, you know, your mind goes to Friday the 13th and all, you know, it's the, the name is usually with darkness and whatnot. It is now, but it wasn't then. If you lived in heaven during that time, pre-earth, pre-human beings, and someone mentioned the name Lucifer, you would think, oh, yes, he's the beautiful one. He's the chosen. He's the one in heaven that God put a few extra ounces of beauty and splendor in. Oh, he has pipes. The beauty that emanates from him is just amazing. We look at that word now as we should and think, ah, that's the arch enemy. Not so back in those days. Ezekiel 28 gives us this very, very high picture of what's happening in the kingdom before earth. I know this is heavy. 
Put your seatbelt on. It's important. Ezekiel 28 verse 12. God speaking to Lucifer. You were the model of perfection. Think about that. You were the model of perfection, God said, full of wisdom and perfect and beauty. Everybody knew it. Everybody recognized his perfection, his splendor, his beauty, his wisdom. And yet those were the very things that escalated his ambition to a place that became fatal. In Ezekiel 28, the same chapter, five verses later in verse 17, your heart became proud, Lucifer, God speaking to him, on account of your beauty. The very thing that I gave to you to be beautiful is the very thing that became your downfall. You see, my guess in this room is that nobody has a personal ambition this afternoon to rob a bank. I'm just guessing. I'm hoping so. That was kind of quiet. It made me a little nervous. There's some people sitting here thinking, actually, that was my ambition. So I said in the first service, hey, if you need, you know, just uh, steal from the, the offering boxes. Don't go to a bank. No, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm, I'm really kidding. I, <laughs> some of you look a little rascally over there. None of us have those ambitions. Bad things happen to us. We do. We end up doing stupid things. I understand that. But the ambitions are often beautiful. Our, the ambitions often have splendor. I want this for my life. I want a house. I want a job. I want all these things. I want to be a great parent. And sometimes it's those very things that are beautiful that even God gives to us that we have a downfall because of them. Verse 17, your heart became proud on account of your beauty. And you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. I don't know if you've caught on, but when you read these words, there was no voluntary action on the part of Lucifer. He didn't keep things in check. And it doesn't sound like to me that there was anyone around him that checked him. Like, wow, man, you're getting a little over your skis. I know you're beautiful. I know you're opulent. I know you have splendor. I know you're wise. I know all that. But man, uh, there's been a few things you've been saying that that are kind of scaring me. We have no indication of that. And so all of a sudden, this ambition came to a place where he was not willing to voluntarily reduce his ambition. I don't know if you've noticed or not, but sometimes when we're unwilling to reduce our own ambition, God steps in and helps us reduce it. God said, oh, you look like you need a little help in reduction. Let me take that and put it into a little chip for you. Ezekiel 28 in the very verse, next verse, verse 18. God says, I reduced you to ashes. Since you would not voluntarily do it on your own, I reduced you to ashes on the ground in the sight of all who are watching. I humiliated you. Ever happened? Boy, it has to me. I get on a pretty high horse, riding high stride, and God said, let me help you out here, just a shade. Gonna cut your, I gotta cut some things down for you. I gotta reduce the size of your gigabytes here, Steve. You're gonna be 1K when we finish. <laughs> but see, this is the very thing that makes Christ so amazing. No one made Christ come. No one forced the hand of Jesus. 
to come to this planet. Watch back to Philippians chapter 2. Christ Jesus, don't miss it, who being in very nature God, on that level, God did not consider equality with God something to be selfishly held on to. That's what the word grasped means in this he, he could have said, I'm God. I'm not going down there with those bozos. I've seen 1K McCoy. I know what he's like. I am equal to God. I'm holding on to it. Not, not so. Christ, the antithesis of our enemy, volunteered. Watch. He did not consider equality with God to be something to be selfishly held on to, but he made himself Nothing. He voluntarily reduced himself, taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Listen, this is the definition of true greatness. Why? Because in that moment when he reduced himself, God said, now I I'm going to add greatness to your life at the, in, in the ninth cha- verse of chapter 2, Philippians. Therefore, because you were willing to reduce yourself, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. When Christ came to earth, he was trying to imp- and infuse this truth of what it really meant to be great. You remember some of the conversations that he had at times. Look, the first shall be last. Lose your life and you'll find something greater. He said all these things. But there comes a time and place where you realize that when you're talking to someone, that you have that, that moment where you think, I don't think they're getting it. I've got to show them. I've got to live this out. I've got to set a model because words are not, are not enough. Concepts are inadequate. Actions are needed. So we find ourselves this morning in the 13th chapter of John. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to, to uh, turn there because we're going to hover there this morning. If not, you can, you can see the verses on the screen. In each of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John... The story of what we call the Last Supper, some people refer to it as communion, are are identified and, and recorded in each of these stories, each of these Gospels. John gives to us a different perspective of what happened at, at the Last Supper. As we know Christ before his death, he gathered around his closest followers, his 12 disciples, and he began to say, "Now, now the time is near. And I, I want to tell you what is going to happen. And he laid out what was going to happen with the cross. He took the bread. He took the wine. He said, let me give you a picture of what that's going, going to take place. But John gives to us a, an additional angle of something that happened at the end of that meal, as, as we'll see. But in this story, here's what I want you to see. I want you to see the tension of ambition for human greatness versus the true definition of greatness. We begin in the second verse of the 13th chapter of John. The evening meal, the last supper, was being served. Now watch. Lucifer, 
who's very, very experienced at ambition gone wrong. The devil had already, and I love the use of this word, prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. You see, we have that saying like, the devil made me do it. Impossible. God made me do it. Impossible. I'll tell you why. God has implanted in us freedom, the ability to choose. The devil cannot make you do anything, but he can prompt you. God will not step over the line and make robots of us and make us do anything, but he prompts us. So we are in this lifetime are caught between two prompts. We're caught between the prompting of our flesh, the world, all those things, and the enemy who tries to draw us into selfish ambition and the prompting of Christ who says, oh no, that won't get you anywhere. That ambition of yours, that holding on of yours will not get you where you need to go and you'll never experience true greatness. So on the hills of the prompting of Judas, see Judas, when he came to, when the devil prompted him, he said, hey, psst, you could go down in history. You could be... You could be the guy who took him down. And in addition to that, if you call today, you'll get an additional 30 pieces of silver. (laughs) It was the same message to Christ in Matthew 4 when, when when Lucifer, who was accustomed, by the way, don't forget, to this selfish ambition with great failure. He was the one that came to Christ just like he tried to, like he prompted Judas. He tried to prompt Christ. He said, look, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. They could be yours. They could be yours. You just bow down and worship me. Jesus said, I'm not biting. Well, let's go to the top of the temple. You, you're God. You're saying you're God. And you say, you've got all these angels. If you throw yourself off and then these angels will catch you, then everybody will know that you're great. Jesus said, I'm not buying. You could prove to everyone. You could look, look at this. There's a chunk of rock. Jesus, I know you got the power. I know it. You you don't have to convince me because I've known you for eternity. You could turn this rock into bread. Just think of the following. He's always there to prompt us to what he would deceive us to think of as greater things. On the hills of this prompting, watch what happens. The tension of this story is amazing. Jesus, on the other hand, in verse 3, the very next verse, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, under Christ's power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Now, the next word for me is mind-blowing. It's a two-letter word. It is mind-blowing because it is the small, plain, and simple words of the Scripture that often give you such insight. So we, we, we get uh, tricked by thinking, oh, you need to know the big words. You, you need to know the, the, the fancy words, the Hebrew words, and all that. They're helpful for sure. But we often trip over the small words. Wouldn't you think the next word would be but? Maybe you haven't thought about it. I'm guessing. But... What it's saying here is that Christ was given all authority 
on top of that, he came from eternity from God and it was going into eternity to be the first one, to, the first resurrected one to go to God. But having said all that, he still did what he was about to do. He got up from the mill. He took off. He stripped his clothing. He wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the feet of the disciples, drying them with a the towel that was wrapped around him. You know that TV show? It's about, uh, what's it called? Undercover uh, Boss. Have you ever seen that? I've seen snips of it uh, where it's a CEO or the owner of the company and undercover. He goes and does what normal working folks do if it's an assembly line. And these guys who are on the assembly line, they don't know it's the CEO. And they're, he's kind of figuring out. It's always kind of this heartwarming thing where it's like, wow, man, I didn't know you were working so hard because I've been up in the corner office on you know the 15th floor and all that jazz. You would think in that story, I'm the CEO. I'm on the 15th floor. I have the corner office, comma, but, however, I'm going to go down anyway. What's being said in this story is I'm the CEO. Christ saying I'm the CEO. So because of that, I'm going down. It doesn't make any sense to us in our human logic. Like what? You're the, you're the CEO and because of that, you're going down? You see, because Lucifer was saying... I'm beautiful, and because of that, he messed up the whole thing up. Christ is saying, no, I'm feeling the weight of who I am, and for that reason, I'm going to wash the feet of the disciples. Now, many of you know this, but let me say it. In, in our home, when we walk in, we take our shoes off. My wife grew up in Japan. It was a practice that she just got conditioned to and whatnot. And so when you come in, you know, we're supposed to put our shoes away, but we don't. There's about 28 pairs of shoes right there at the front door. It's pretty cool. The upsize, it keeps your floor a little cleaner. The downsize, you trip a lot when you walk in the door because there's a lot of shoes. In these, in this day, what happened was that you have to imagine there was no asphalt. There was no concrete. It was just dirt roads. You know what happens to dirt roads when it rains. A lot of mud, a lot of slush. There were no, um, uh, most people wore uh, uh, either sandals or some barefoot. And when they came in, their feet were not just mildly dirty and dusty. Often they were filthy. When they walked into a home, often there was a basin sitting beside the front door. Either they washed their own feet before they came into the home or a servant, a slave was there to wash them. Never the head of household. Never. Christ said, here's what I'm about to do. We have come to the end of words. Concepts are now going to be turned into actions. And I'm going to strip myself. I was thinking, boy, I could write a book and sell a million cop copies. It would be called Christ was a stripper. What do you think? Huh? 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 Just kidding. Some of you are like, hmm, I could take that idea. I think I could write a book called... He stripped himself. We're told that he took his outer clothing off and basically got down to his long johns. It was an act of humility. It was an act that he said, I want to show you what it means to be able to, to, to serve and the definition of greatness. In verse 12, he, he begins by saying this, when he had finished the washing the feet, washing their feet, he put his clothes on and he returned to his place. This collection that we're called 
that we're in is called quest. Today we look for the quest of greatness. Each of these quests are born from a question. And here's the question of the day. Christ turned to them, looked them eye to eye, and he said, the, he asked these words, do you understand what I have done for you? The, the deeper I grow in God's word and the more I get to know Christ, I marvel at his brilliance. I marvel at it. He can take 8 billion gigabytes and put it down to one question. He's looking them in the eye, and what he's saying is, not just do you get it, but do you understand enough that you'll do it also? Do you understand that I have been given full authority, and because of that, I am compelled to do something with that authority that is not selfish? Do you understand that I have perfection but I'm called to do something with that perfection. You see, this is the what. But now I want to, I want to, I think what Christ is saying, do you understand why I've done this? Last week we looked at a verse that I just can't pass up I, and, and I have to bring it to your attention. Psalm 18, verse 35. Look at this. This verse says this and it just captures what's happening here with Christ. David, the psalm writer says to God, you stoop down to make me great. You see, Jesus is saying this. True greatness is when you strip yourself enough that someone else becomes greater as a result of it. Lucifer says, no, greatness is for your gain. Greatness is for your advantage. Greatness is when you come out in the plus column. Christ is saying, no, you subtract in your column so someone else becomes great. Remember in Ezekiel 28, verse 17, Jesus, uh, God said, your heart became proud on account of your beauty. You corrupt the yours because of your splendor. Jesus said, no, I'm because of who I am. I've got to do this. Now we're the recipients of this great move of Christ who came down and now we're compelled. Watch second Corinthians chapter five, 14, Christ love compels us. That's like super prompt, by the way, it super prompts us. Because we're convinced that one died for all, that therefore all died, Christ died for all, that those who live, those who have been recipients of eternal life should no longer live for themselves. Okay, why? But for him who died for them and was raised again. You see, Jesus is saying, look, this, here's the deal. When you strip yourselves of stuff, you may think I'm only talking about pride. You may think that I'm only talking about the things that, that, that would cause you to elevate, but I propose to you it's different. Jesus is saying, if you do not strip yourself of, of things in your life, then others will not be able to see me. Let me give you a, a, a real life example. If you're not tracking so far, there was this dog that was found in, in England. And the dog, in fact, I brought a picture of it. Here's the dog. You think, is that actually a dog? That is Bigfoot right there. Yeah. Here's the thing that we know about this dog. He has a tongue. Uh, if you're listening to the podcast, that made absolutely no sense. All you can see of this furry dog is it hasn't been kept up. 
hasn't, so this lady, the next picture shows that this lady saw him, found him, had compassion on this dog. There's the tongue still sticking out. Uh, and she's going to give this dog a haircut. So when we look about, when we think about this, this whole concept of, of stripping down, let me throw out a few things because you may just think, okay, Lucifer was proud and he had this selfish ambition and that's cool because I wouldn't want that. But I would propose to you that the, there's some inner things in us that we hold on to. They were not willing to let go. You remember we're told that Christ did not want to grasp them, did not want to hold on to them. Let me start with one. How about fear? Shyness. A person may say, you know, I'm, I'm shy and um, I, I, I really, I, I don't want to get close to anybody. And, and I certainly can't disciple anybody. And I, well, I don't want to, I don't want to get, you know, like in a closer group. I don't want to do any of that. And, 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 and all of a sudden we've taken that as our identity. And because of that identity, we hold on. And now Christ cannot be seen because we've said, that's who I am. And Christ would say, oh, I want others to see Christ in you. I want you to strip yourself and lay that down and be willing to say, okay, I know I'm shy. I know I'm quiet. I know I'm reserved. I know I'm a little fearful, but I'm laying that down. I'm stripping myself of it so that Christ can come up and others can see. If you just lock yourself in with a rusty lock and say, well, I'm shy for the rest of your life and, and that's it. Then Christ's like, oh man, I wanted to use, I wanted to use you. Now you're never going to get up here and sing, you know, the Star Spangled Banner if you're super shy. I get that. But you don't want it to let it get in your way. I know people that are so worried. That's all they ever talk about. Every time you see them, how's it going? Well, I don't know, man. Almost ran out of gas last week. I mean, we, I only got a half a tank. I'm like, half a tank, dude. That's full for me. <laughs> I wait for the light. You know what I'm talking about? Everything's about the worry, but you can never see Jesus because it's all about that. Some people are, it's all about their job. Every time I that, it's about my job. And there's this ambition. That's a good, it's an ambition to be good, to be promoted, to, to, but that's all there is. And we can't see Christ because of that. Let me take a one that's shocking. How about niceness? That's mine. I'm very nice. I'm too nice sometimes. I'm Southern gentleman. That's how I was raised. And I'm learning to say, hey, not to be ugly, but hey, I want Christ to be seen in truth and grace, not just Mr. Super Grace. When people say, man, I've blown that. That's okay, man. We all blow it. No, that's not Christ. That doesn't bring people. All these subtle things Christ wants to say, I want to strip you of so that Christ can be manifest, right? You get it? So let's go to the haircut. Here we go. Oh, good question. I love your response, by the way. Because when people, when we begin to strip, there's a couple people that are strippers that are really close to me. Let me rephrase that. <laughs> Who are spiritual strippers. Honestly, man, it is the greatest joy I have because I understand. Watch, go back to the kingdom perspective. It's huge. The tension is huge. 
The tension is, is palpable. The, the, the difficulty of a stripping, whatever that is. Maybe you're, an, you're, you're over the top. Uh, you you got to talk about It's always you talking. Or maybe you're so shy you never say anything. Well, whatever those things are, I know whatever that thing is that you have, that it's so difficult to strip because I know how difficult it is for me to strip of myself. But when I see it, I have the same response you did to that little fella. Oh, wow. I see somebody new. She asked it. Are you sure that's the same dog? Would to God that people would ask us that about us. Would to God. Wow. Are you the same person? Nope. I'm a stripper. John thirteen fourteen. now that I, your teacher and Lord, have stripped, you also should wash one another's feet and strip. I have set for you an example that you should do as I have done for you. There's sometimes... They're single words that Christ would say to us. Pray. There's sometimes that Christ says to us, go. There's sometimes that Christ says to us, speak. There's sometimes that Christ says to us, wait. Today, Christ says to us, strip. (laughs) I like this message. So just, I'm kidding. (laughs) Like, we got it. We got it. We got it. Do you understand what I've done? Yep, we understand. (laughs) I want to share with you today a story. I've been promising you that there are stories happening behind the scenes. And today I'm going to show you a film of a story. It's an amazing story. It's the story of uh, Katie Betts. Katie Betts is um, one of our act group catalysts. Here at 360, that's a small group. In case you don't know that lingo, we have small groups like many churches do. We call them at groups, and uh, we call our leaders catalysts for a specific reason. I won't go into. But uh, Katie is, uh, I wish you weren't here because I don't want to embarrass you, but Katie is um, an, one of the most amazing artists that I have ever uh, witnessed. She is a, a professor um, instructor at Ringling College of uh, Art and Design. If you've ever been to Ringling, I've been there several times, a number of times actually, and uh, the work of the students is off the chain. Uh, So you can imagine as an instructor there that there is no, I mean the chain was left a long time ago. It's like super duper off the chain. Her work is just amazing. I relate to this story, Katie, because as many of you know, I, uh, I have a doctorate degree in piano. And in in any field, but in art, it takes an amazing investment to get up to a certain level. Amazing investment. And that investment can easily turn into ambition because you've worked and worked and invested, et cetera. And just just like life does, it just kind of prompts you to make that everything. 
until Christ comes along. And Christ says, let me read. Would you allow me to redefine greatness in your life? Because you could come to the end of your life and be a great artist, a great musician, a great architect, a great builder, a great plumber, whatever that is thing for you. But if that's what's that's been your prompting, you really don't have an understanding of true greatness. Here's a story of true greatness I want to share with you this morning. Katie Betts. My name is Katie Betts. I'm an illustrator. I also teach in the illustration department at Ringling College of Art and Design. And I lead the Art Act Group uh, here at 360. When I moved here, I thought, I love to travel and I love adventure. And I moved here thinking, literally thinking, I'm going to take Sarasota by storm. (laughs) In my mind, that meant... Oh gosh, getting into galleries, networking, um, go, raising up in my, in my position in school, and doing all this stuff. One thing that's always been a challenge for me is giving time to other people, because I feel like I value my time. time. Time is the most valuable commodity, and I would always feel threatened if other people wanted my time, because I felt like that was art time, you know, (laughs) and I I guess I didn't see the value in spending time with other people, and that's originally what um, prevented me from changing and growing. I remember Steve in in one of his messages one time said, "Um, there's life and then there's truly life, and I feel like work and school and all these things that I love, it finally clicked on in my mind that that is just life. But at group and the stuff that happens at church, that's like truly life. And so it, it finally dawned on me that like I should invest in that more than school and work. <laughs> I definitely saw my calling with my students, obviously, because that's my job. But I didn't realize it that that was my same role in my at group and how much more important that is because I can spiritually challenge them, not just academically, but in their in their eternal life and how they're going to live here on earth and and the priority and the sense of responsibility just um, was clear suddenly to me and it's like okay there has to be a change I need to pay more attention to these people and it was actually a conversation in our act group I was talking about my career and how I love it so much and I actually said these words I said you know, but your career can't love you back. And um, and then I realized I realized that I need to change my energy and um, pour into people who can love you back, who you can really love and love back. And I think that was a moment that God used to speak through me to me to myself. So that was a big change. Um, if I were to answer the question, what is the meaning? The only way it would have meaning for me is if I know God. If I know that there is a God who loves me and has saved me, then I can find meaning in life. Um, without that, there's no reason to care about people or paint pictures.
You know, you could look at uh, that story and think, wow, um, now there's a great artist. And at the end of your life, Katie, you could say, wow, you're a great artist. What you've told us today by your story is that's not all that I want. I want I want Christ to be seen. I want true greatness. And she said something in that story that I, I don't want to miss. We've looked at the what. Christ says strip. We've looked at the why so that he can be seen. But I don't want to miss the how because that's where the rubber hits the road. That's where we often don't talk about. And we've got to. You see, I want you to remember that these disciples just weren't sitting in a room and like, you know what? I got it. I was just thinking. I was sitting here thinking. I was eating. I was sitting here eating a falafel. And um, <laughs> it just came to me. I, now I, tr- I, c- I completely understand greatness. It doesn't happen that way in life, at least for me. You too, right? Please say yes. The disciples needed someone else to help prompt in their life. Guys, I've talked to you about it, but let me show you. She said, These, this talking to me right in the midst of my group, not sitting on a hillside, not sitting in some solitary room in a monastery, but it comes, the how is through other people. We need others in our life to say, hey, your ambition is getting a little bit on the upswing. Careful there, Lou. Sifer. Easy there. Someone needs to go and it's, wait a second. You see, she's investing in others, but I think she would say today, others have invested in me. This story came through many conversations. Who is having that conversation with you and who are you having that conversation with? This is the body of Christ. This is where it happens and this is the how. Don't try this alone at home. You need someone to say, let me tell you what it means to have true greatness. I need those people around my life. I need it. We're very intentional about that here. Very intentional because we recognize that that is the way we're moved into greatness. We need each other.